0: And we discuss some of the most vital issues facing veterans today. Join us for this episode of Veteran Voices. Half a day and hello. Mary-Kate Saliva with you here on Veteran Voices. Thanks for joining us today. We've got a wonderful conversation. I'm really excited teed up for you today with a veteran and an advocate. Stay tuned for a great discussion. Quick programming note before we get started. This program is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming. It's conducted in partnership with our friends, my dear friends of Vesta Industry. Learn more about this powerful nonprofit that is serving so many folks at VetsToIndustry.org. And an initiative near and dear to my heart, the Guam Human Rights Initiative. Find them on LinkedIn and at the University of Guam under the Regional Center for Public Policy. Okay, I can't wait any longer. I've been very, very excited to introduce our guests in the past few weeks. So without further ado, let's introduce our guest today. Our guest serves as the Director of Law Enforcement at the Human Trafficking Institute. He's also a veteran of the United States Army. And hint, hint, he is a psychological operations soldier veteran, just like I am. And here, without further ado, John Freeman. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me today.
1: Awesome. Hey, Mary-Kate. Great to be here. Thank you for inviting me and really looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yes, I'm really excited for our listeners today to get to know a little bit more about you and about what you're doing now. So I'd like to get started with some motivation. I know maybe our listeners are looking out their window right now and it's sunny But as you know, where we're at now, it's pretty dreary. It's pretty gray, gloomy day. So I need a little pep in our step today. And we wanted to know if you could give us a little bit of motivation with a favorite motivational quote of yours.
1: Mine probably goes back to my lower enlisted days in the Army. And I don't know exactly who to give the full credit to. Probably my first sergeant, John Chandler at the time, but maybe my team sergeant. I might talk about him later. Hope for the best. prepare for the worst. It's rainy where I am. And so yes. uh, nowadays, if I'm going out in the rain, I'm taking an umbrella, you know, couldn't have an umbrella in uniform. But uh, yeah, I I like to be prepared for things and it's served me well, both professionally and personally.
0: It's really great. And when you say hope for the best, prepare for the worst, I mean, there's a pretty wide range there of what the worst can be. <laughs> and when you talk about being from, you know, coming from the Army community, that, that could range from all kinds of things. So I don't know. The first thing that stuck out in my mind was how a lot of times the drill instructors will have us eat cake donuts, chug a bunch of chocolate milk before they throw us in the gas chamber. So <laughs> you hope for the best. And you're like, yes, they finally like us. No, they don't. So that's a really great quote.
1: My donut connection was finding Krispy Kreme donuts in the chow hall at uh, jump school, and thought like, man, like I'm definitely loving this army thing. And then, of course, I don't think the Krispy Kreme stayed down for very long. I went through jump school. In I June. you got
0: Krispy Kreme. I mean, times have definitely changed. John. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think I ever got Krispy creams when I was in. But I really, really love that quote. I think that's something that definitely applies today, and even uh, during my time in service. I want to take it a little bit further back now and, and start and, and let our listeners know about where you grew up. And I've been really looking forward to getting to know this part about you as well.
1: Sure. Born into a military family. My dad was in the Air Force at the time I was born, but um, with my family based out of mostly Charleston, South Carolina, I was born in a Navy hospital. So I got really? I got almost all the branches covered. Um with with his with my dad's uh Air Force career, we moved a couple places throughout the South, uh, Mississippi, Texas, Georgia. And then by the time I get to first grade, we were overseas in Germany. And that was 73 to 76. I didn't know it at the time, but the Cold War was going on. I just knew that you know, my dad wore a uniform every day, and you know, so did everybody else's dad. And um, we came back to the states, uh, lived in uh outside of St. Louis, at Scott Air Force Base. We lived in an old uh base now closed, Richards Kabauer, uh, outside of Kansas City. I wish I had known about Kansas City barbecue at the time. And then we end up his last uh posting was to Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska, home of Strategic Air Command. And so, you know, by that time I'm in junior high and high school, and I kind of realized what the Cold War is and knew that, you know, when my dad was in a flight suit, he was on the airborne command post. Uh, in EC-135, the looking glass was the call sign of the plane. One was up 24 hours a day on eight-hour shifts over the course of like 25 or 30 years during the cold. So to know that that, that was what his career was like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: with like kind of the heavier undertone of it, but also every summer standing on a flight line at an air show. I'm a total airplane geek. I mean, if I hear a, a jet fly over in the middle of this call, I might jump up and go see what jet it is. But I I think maybe genetically, I knew I was going to go into the army or into, into the military. I don't think I had math skills to get into like the pilot seat. Um, I remember a bunch of, you know, neighbors, fathers who are pilots. Oh, uh, you got to have a good engineering or math background. And I didn't. I ended up going to the University of Nebraska after graduating high school. Not really on a good track. I was not a great student. Uh, I I thought I would be getting a degree in international affairs. And after a couple of years, I realized I'm, I'm going through a lot of money with not a lot to show for it, not a lot of discipline in those years. And then I think simplistically knew the Army recruiter down in Lincoln, Nebraska would would listen to what I I, I might have to offer. In those days, this is uh, 1988 for those keeping track, the recruiters had video discs in each disc. Really? Pertain to the job skill. Yeah. Not not VCRs, not DVDs.
0: There was a whole library of video discs. No, yeah, like a bookcase job? filled with,
1: with these oh, video goodness. discs. You know, and they were all the size of dinner plates or uh, you know, the older members of the audience, uh, classic albums. And he pulled a couple of them off. And I don't remember my ASVAB score. I tested, I remember him saying I tested and, and could qualify for military intelligence. And I thought, ooh, that sounds awesome.
0: It does sound
1: awesome. And then he showed me a couple of those and I don't remember being impressed by them. And he pulled one off, put it in, and the opening scene is a Jeep. And at the time I didn't know what was mounted in the back of the Jeep, but you and I would both recognize it as a loudspeaker system. And it was off on, you know, the, the, what I refer to as the Madam Mile side of the hill at Smoke Bomb Hill, where we used to do PT all the time that I was in sixth or ninth battalion. So seeing that, I'm thinking, like, you know, like, well, that's kind of cool. And the, you know, the guys had face paint on, they had the old steel pot. This is a pre-Kevlar video.
0: Thank and, goodness.
1: And I thought, well, that's that's kind of cool. And the recruiter said, and it's got the airborne option. And I said, Well, oh. well I, what was that? What does that mean? He goes, Well, you would be going to jump school and it's $110 extra a month. And I thought, $110 extra a month. Hey, Sergeant, where do I sign up?
0: Oh, okay. They yeah. got you. They got you,
1: John. They got chasing, you. chasing the money. In hindsight, though, I am so glad that that was the path that that video disc put me on because it literally leads to all the doors that were open for me or all the doors that I fell into. Um, it gets me into, I think you might agree, one of the coolest career fields in the military, in the Army. It opened so many doors. It exposed me to so much stuff. If your career was anything like mine, you were always being in, allowed to perform at a much higher level in a much higher environment had you been, you know, an E2, E3, E4 in almost any other career field. You know, it, it, it is a special part of, of the Army. You know, at the time, we were part of the first Special Operations Command. We had a cool patch with a horse like the Trojan horse. With, um, I think, a lightning bolt through it, if I remember. A good old
0: chest piece.
1: You know, we refer to it as the electric jackass. You know, and at the time, like, it it, it was awesome. And and going in as a, you know, kind of college dropout and then getting through basic and AIT. And I thought basic and AIT were a walk in the park. You know, we had the best drill sergeant at basic at, at Fort Jackson. The two drills we had going through AIT at Fort Bragg. And we were the only AIT students class on Fort Bragg, which is grueling to be uh, at the time a leg <laughs> and get yelled at by airborne guys driving up and down. Some of our well.
0: listeners today might be legs as well.
1: God bless Meaning
0: you, you're not airborne. You don't yeah. that The smart ones, uh, let's say. But yeah. oh goodness, I, I really, your, your whole um, experience is just so interesting because you were part of that original with the the OG group of uh, psychological operations, and then into like the newer generation of having to go through the selection assessment process. Uh is really interesting. And I love the your description of the discs. Cause I didn't, I would love to unbury that disc and really see what that was about. Because I think for for mine, it was a little bit different. They, and this this kind of ties in well with what you're you're doing now, but the counter-human trafficking piece was where my recruiters really got me, where they're like, oh, PSYOP, we do a lot of counter-human trafficking. And I was like, really? Um, Maybe not so much, but I was an Army medic at the time. And, you know, when I look back at mine, I was also born in a Naval hospital as well. My dad was Navy. So similarities there. And I just think it's really, really cool how many um, similarities we do have in our career, even though... Uh, it was at different times, so now I would, can't say there's probably still some that hasn't changed. I mean, we still got the, the loudspeakers, still got so you can come and check them out sometime in reminisce.
1: You no, know, and, and if, if if I remember the scheduling correctly, one of these Friday afternoons, everybody's going to be out picking up pine cones, doing the spring cleanup, um, which
0: oh yeah, that's always coming. We still do that. So
1: I mean, I remember. I I remember our
0: poor active duty guys. So,
1: I remember being an E three, thinking like, can't they get people from you know prisons to do this stuff?
0: <laughs> oh, they already pay you. Um, but it's really, you're absolutely right. That is such a rewarding uh, choice to to do a career to pursue in the army. So, uh, hopefully, retention's thanking us. Maybe our conversation today will help somebody. Yeah. I think there's, uh, there's more often than not people that don't understand psychological operations or or what it is that we do. but I think it's just really it really is a rewarding uh, career. And my the opportunity that I had to work with with Muslim women, opportunity to work with law enforcement, with the host nation, the opportunities there to engage with people in the villages that they grow up in that they live in and being able to really hear what they're and listen to what they're experiencing, what their concerns are, what their wants are. It's just really great to see the, the fruit of our labor, so to speak, after I a try to work towards yep. a and common towards goal. That. And you know, yes. the,
1: the, I think the kind of cheesier, you know, maybe line that was maybe coming out of Vietnam or winning the hearts and minds. Well, sometimes that's exactly what it is to get them to support the overall goal that we have, either as a military or as a country moving forward.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. It and
1: it's so great to, to have that. The other massive factor for me was probably after about two years in, I took a position as the junior most training NCO up in my battalion's S3 office in the uh, the operations office. And I think it was tremendously foundational for almost everything I've done Since that day in probably 1992, Uh, a friend of mine now, you know, will describe me sometimes as a bureaucrat, and I appreciate the structure of formulating things like if it's a training regiment, can we go down to range control and, and sign up to get, you know, a company of, of soldiers to, you know, practice and recall, qualify on their rifles, the for me, the process of learning that and helping to set that up, and sometimes having to go back to the company, and get rasped, you know, by my buddies who are still in the line company on on the loudspeaker teams, you know, still kind of dragging their knuckles, whereas I'm this, you know, uh, paper pusher. Hey guys, I need your stats. You have to sign up for this. You know, we need this many people we still for have this. Have those
0: time. today, John. We still got those paper. Yeah, pushers. and
1: but but it, it taught me down more down. more than just the like the mindset of, of being on the operational team that, that so much goes into ensuring that the actual, the really sharp pointy tip of the spear gets to where it needs to be. You've got everything behind that on the spear who's helping to get the ultimate team to where they need to be. And, you know, nobody would have walked down into our old platoon or company area and said, Hey, you know, we're looking for the best in the brass to come up on staff. Right. But it, it, for me personally, it was very instrumental in helping me to organize how I conduct myself and how I can apply my abilities to business or operational models, no matter where my career has taken me.
0: I really love that. And I, to take it back, you, you touched on a couple of things there about from your time growing up and, and that transition that you had into going into the military. Do you have any sort of anecdotes from from that time, like just before you ended up enlisting in the Army?
1: You mean pre army?
0: Yep, pre army. Do you have any sort of anecdotes from that time?
1: Just you know, the the coming from a, a a military family, we were always you know moving from from army air force base to air force base. You know, the to be able to see the world and do a lot of traveling, I think, opened up my eyes to concepts that I would not have gotten had I just grown up in one neighborhood. You know, attended one or two schools Absolutely. with the exact same number of close friends. Um, and, and I really appreciate the chance to get a more wide ranging aspect of things. You know, sometimes I would tell people that my family's, you know, from the South, from, from Tennessee, from, from South Carolina, and people say, but you don't have an accent. Well, because I'm a military brat, you know, mm-hmm. we, I grew up with kids from every other part of the United States. Some had accents, some didn't. And we all merged together. Uh, as military brat, so that was probably the the childhood developmental anchor for me.
0: Oh, a nice plug with the anchor in there too. <laughs> so um, I actually a- agree with that too. Some it wasn't always that we were moving, but even growing up in in maybe housing, my friends were also moving. So yep. having the opportunity that even if I wasn't the one moving, my friends were moving. But I also, of course, this was pre September 11th. Pre Twin Towers falling. So the, it was different then. Uh, there wasn't all the fences and the gates around those communities. Uh, and you may remember that too. Like the housing was fairly open where you could have friends that were not part of a military family that lived down the road in a different neighborhood, but they could easily come up to your house. Uh, as opposed to now, a lot of these housing uh, developments are Gated, in gated communities and fenced off but back then uh, it really was anybody could just come knocking on the door and and ask to come out and play and i really think having that uh, exposure to kids from all different parts of the country and parts of the world uh, i mean even some of the or my mom's friends like even some of the the wives of the sailors were from other countries so and hearing those accents but i really remember the food and Having that exposure awesome. to like to pancit and like the different food from the, like the Philippines or food from uh, South Korea and just having that exposure. Uh, German bratwurst. German food. Yeah, it's just, you know, eating all that food as a wasn't just a round child, but uh, oh. really loved to eat <laughs> from that from that time.
1: My first actual job with a paycheck was at the Air Force Base golf course. It was then called Cape Art because of the Capehart neighborhood. And you're exactly right. There were no fences in that. You just drive in.
0: Yeah, no no fences. I
1: think the public could play at the golf course, but it was also, you know, everybody from the Air Force, from the four-star general, you know, the commander of Strategic Air Command, one of those four-star generals left his wallet in the golf carts. And I was part of the crew that would put the golf carts away and we'd have to clean up the clubhouse. And I found the general's wallet you know, putting golf carts away and okay. ran it up to my boss. And he was a retired chief master sergeant, Chief Guerrero. Hey, chief, I think I found the general's wallet. And he just places a phone call and must have called, you know, the staff duty officer. General came right back. And I, I go out there, you know, scared to death. Like, sir, here's your wallet. He like, hey, thanks. In hindsight, like, you could have slipped me a five or something. You know. I know. Bought me oh,
0: well, now nowadays it'd probably be you know maybe maybe a challenge coin or something. But goodness, or, yeah, not even
1: a five. You, or you get proned out by SPs. Like, hey, did you rifle through the wallet? You know, you know, take did I you take the No, dude. I was oh mortified God. when I found that wallet.
0: Oh well. <laughs> Yeah. That's, oh, I, I love the stories of the winds that they're driving around the general and then they forget to take down the markers. And so they go through the gate and people, the gate guards are saluting them, but they're not the general, you know, got to remember those things. So, um, that, that's, too, that's really funny. Uh, I really wanted to, to get into, we, we touched on a little bit about the early stages of your career in the army, but wanted to talk a little bit more about, Where you you got to go during your time in service? Because you touched a little bit about that. Did did psyop afford you an opportunity to travel a lot?
1: Of course it did, and and uh, I can only assume that yours was even more travel filled than mine was, just because of the rapid uh, and constant deployments uh, of of the last twenty plus years. So I had been at the unit for less than, I think, three months. And we got, I think we called it, we, we used to term reacted. And we jumped on a C-141 and flew down to the island of St. Croix after it had been devastated by Hurricane Hugo. This is September of 1989. And so that was, that was me, you know, doing a little bit of my job. We set up a loudspeaker once or twice to tell people uh, where to go to get food and water. So a humanitarian mission you know, and, and okay. then recruiter didn't talk about that. We didn't talk about that in basic training or AIT, but here we are doing humanitarian mission. It was, it was great. Three week deployment, um, flew back to Bragg, you know, and it, it got cold while we were gone. And about that time as a, as a PFC, i was starting to hear the word Panama repeated time after time. And sure enough, uh, December, I guess it was 18th. I was in the chow hall, uh, same chow hall that i had been going to when i was at ait and our company clerk came in and grabbed about six or seven of us guys you got to come back you're, you're going i'm like where are we going we got attached to the 82nd went through the holding area with the guys i was attached to the fourth of 325 parachute infantry regiment if i remember correctly and loaded up a 141 with them, and early on the morning of the 20th of December, jumped out of a C-141 into combat. And I joke about it now afterwards, but like, you know, here's here's a knucklehead college dropout who signed up for the college fund. And my seventh jump is into combat. Yeah, there were dudes shooting. Um, I, I remember seeing red and green tracers. It was it was not the the onslaught of combat, you know, that our grandfathers would have seen in World War II, but it, it was intense combat in the eyes of a, of a then 22-year-old who'd kind of been through about six months of training. My team sergeant at the time, Paul Backstrom, did a very good job of keeping me under his wing. We were together for the entire three weeks. We were in Panama, three weeks. And if I was coming close to making anything resembling a mistake, Paul would grab me by the scruff of my neck and, you know, put me back in line. And I, and everything that I was doing was to emulate Paul or make sure I would, I wouldn't upset him. So um that was instrumental. And then three weeks later, we're back at Bragg again. And in February of 90, we went through training and I, I, I you know, as a, as a, as a know-it-all, then uh I think I got, I pinned on E4, a know-it-all E4 like, why do we have to go through this kind of training? We just were proven in combat. No knucklehead. You're always going to be training. Uh, but, you know, I was, I was a young idiot. Um, within six months, we're all being deployed to uh, Saudi Arabia to get ready for Desert Storm. Oh, wow. Was on a three-man a three, a three, three man team, last speaker team, eventually in a Humvee, driving all over Saudi Arabia, Iraq and Kuwait, just reminding um, myself yesterday, like we didn't take showers very often.
0: <laughs> that that wasn't discussed. You hold your pants up and it wouldn't fall down, right? Yeah, just... yeah.
1: That, that, that factor was not discussed in the recruiter's office, you know, a year and a half prior. But that that's one of those episodes where you get exposed to so much. So with a little bit of experience in St. Croix in Panama, by the time we get to Desert Shield, and leading into Desert Storm, I got attached to Second Armor Cavalry Regiment, and at times I'd find myself standing in the talk, looking around like, "Whoa, this is awesome!" And you know, I'm I'm, I'm now a corporal. I got laterally, laterally promoted to corporal, and impressive to watch these professional soldiers, you know, NCOs and officers, um, who were about to lead the Seventh. Um, seventh course effort that famous left, uh, the right hook into, uh, Kuwait. And I'm, I'm standing in the regimental talk, you know, I have to go and get information and then bring it back to our detachment where it would be parsed out to the loudspeaker teams that we had. And I think it's slowly, maybe at that stage, I realized, Hey, I'm, I'm also part of this team. I'm wearing the same uniform. I'm not this, you know, dumbass college student anymore. and And that was impressive to me. You know, the 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 reality of Desert Storm Smacks Home, I think maybe at the end of the first or second day after we driven into Iraq, encountering Iraqi soldiers who had really just walked away from their unit. They weren't really surrendering to us. Okay, maybe technically they did. But we got to interview them. The guy who was our team leader, my team leader, uh, an interrogator. What was that, 97 Echo, maybe? I don't remember the code. He would say that we interrogated them. I think we interviewed them because they were telling us anything we wanted to know, And these were conscript soldiers from the very badly defeated Iraqi army. Um, and, and I remember thinking like, we're getting information from them that's gonna help, but also thinking what happens to these guys afterwards? Yeah, they're gonna end up in a cage in, in a large in area in Saudi Arabia. And sometimes I think like, whatever happened to those guys? Did they go back and were encountered on the battlefield again in 2003 or later? Or were they, by that time, older members, you know, fathers, grandfathers in Iraqi society? I'll never know. Um, But that human part of it for me, mostly because they were not pointing an AK-47 at me. I I never felt threatened by people like that that we encountered. Most of the threats as a, you know, Humvee-based loudspeaker team was from artillery being traded back and forth. But, you know, for me, being exposed to first ACR, the second ACR's talk, um, I was later the detachment NCO when three of us went up to support, I think it was 1st Armored Division, and then we spent some time up at the Truce Point, um, mm-hmm. up just north of Safwan, Iraq. You know, and every once in a while, I, again, I find myself in these tents or these massive, I don't even know what the guys called them. You know, the tracks all backed up, the armored personnel carriers backed up with a huge tent, a massive armored personnel carrier command centers just awesome and you know I'm there as the siop NCO that was that was also you know professionally impressive to me to be able to do that and as a guy who'd never been through an NCO school as a guy who'd never been formally in charge of groups of I was not a platoon sergeant you know I certainly hadn't been to West Point but I'm standing in the room with people who are and that was the thing that i I really appreciate the the exposure to Really advanced development that I think you and I got in that community that we came from. It was awesome.
0: It, it really, it really is. I mean, we could literally talk all day about the different stories that we had, but I think one of the commonalities is that the experience that we had as PSYOP soldiers really what we experienced overseas. Um, you know, and it's, it's not to say that we don't love being home, but the experiences that we had to be able to see. Uh, to see them grow, like the wherever we're at, the, the host nation working with them, like I said, working with law enforcement or working with their military, seeing the people there uh grow and prosper. Yep, it's really and the humanitarian mission that you mentioned that was really appealing to me entering this community was you know, what can what can our team do to really make a positive difference? You know, being able to bridge that any gaps. Uh, being able to provide any resources. So I I really think that that was a rewarding part of the job is working with people. You talked about even the Intel part. I I think military intelligence was something that was interesting to me in the beginning as well. But I really see myself working with people. It's why I became an army medic at at the gate when I first came in. But um, but I think just being with people, helping people. Uh, supporting people and, and i see that you uh doing a, a lot of that you still continue doing that now you touched on on one of the leaders that took you under your wing but do you have a couple people that you'd like to give a shout out to uh that were really yeah. paramount in your career
1: my the, the team started mentioning paul baxter i actually talked to him on monday uh two oh days. you
0: did oh well, hopefully um, he's tuned in to this today
1: we he was so influential in my life and then you know it's it, again, maybe people didn't have it in other military communities, but to be rising to the level of a peer of his, you know, within a short matter of time, meant that you know it was a relationship that I get to have with Paul, and not just Sergeant Backstrom. He eventually would go off into uh, special forces. I stayed in the psyop community, but as we both kind at got Fort out,
0: Bragg, right? All yep. at Fort Bragg, North Carolina.
1: As as we both got out of the Army about the same time, 1996 or so. He called me one day, and we'd stayed in touch. We actually went to a job fair at the Fayetteville Civic Center one time, and, and we're both in our very ill-fitting suits at the time. But um, like, we, we stayed in touch over the years. And, and this was kind of pre-Internet. You know, this, These were phone calls that we would have from time to time. And so he calls me in 1998 and said, diplomatic security is hiring. I said, well, that sounds interesting. What is diplomatic security? And he very quickly explained the law enforcement security arm of the U.S. Department of State. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. Paul, would you please hang up the phone so I can get in touch with it? There was no website. I had to call him. Hi, I would like an application. Long story short, we both got hired off the same hiring list. Wow. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, the all the applications come in. The HR uh, office goes through hundreds, if not thousands of applications, and then builds a list most qualified. So Paul got into training class number 50 in 1998. I got into training class 52 in 1999.
0: You're still following him around, John. Oh, still it, continued.
1: Follow- it, it, it continued for 20 years because he, he was on Secretary of State Albright's protection detail. And years later, I was on Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice's protection detail. We both converted from being a Foreign Service special agent of diplomatic security to being civil servant special agents, so we 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 kind of resigned from the foreign service, and then both took domestic anchoring jobs so that we could each focus on investigations. Um, as as diplomatic security special agents, uh, much like SIOP, the world is the l- world is literally your oyster. Um, you can do everything from counterterrorism work to counterintelligence work to counter. Uh, drug trafficking, human trafficking, uh, VIP, bodyguard protection. But the real bread and butter for the agency is helping to secure and defend U.S. embassies and consulates in every country of the world. Um, Which, you know, that one little phone call with Paul back in 1998, I had no idea the door that I was opening that would take me to so many different foreign countries. I was eventually posted to the U.S. consulate in Lagos, Nigeria, uh, and years later, after two domestic assignments, went to work in the U.S. Embassy in Seoul, South Korea, and it, just a fantastic organization. Small, but the the ability to really hone professionally, and as in individual, as an individual, develop what you want to develop. Um, and, and I chose investigations, which then led me to go into a civil service position. Which gets me, you know, where I am today, still fighting anti-trafficking uh, efforts. Although I retired back in uh, the summer of 2020, so Paul was very instrumental. The uh, it, it was it was amazing to kind of have him as a touchstone all throughout both my army and then my diplomatic security career. So tremendous hats off to him, and I definitely owe him uh, at least a good lunch the next time I see him.
0: Well, I hope you're tuning in today, Paul. This one's for you. Uh, this episode, it really just such a cool experience. And, and just in your lifetime, your professional life, you've just talked about so many changes. I mean, you touched on pre internet and pre, like you were like, not even DVD. And so just in the, in the changes that have happened in your professional life and, and just how the messaging and the recruiting, uh, really takes it back to the root of just, friend helping friend veteran helping veteran uh taking it back to the core uh so really appreciate that that little anecdote there and i think if you were talking to a room full of of transitioning service members now what are what are some things that you would like to say to them to to help them get through their transition
1: yeah it, it, it's one of those things and i i think it's still a reality although tell me if i'm so outdated uh <laughs> Making sure all the paperwork is correct. Yes, you know, is everything as you want it to be on your DD two fourteen? You don't want to have to come back, you know, six months, twelve months, twelve years later, and realize, oh shoot, something's not right. I'm really not qualified for a VA loan. So all of the all of the paperwork, and if if nowadays maybe people just save it, you know, in, on on their account on the cloud, if they're saving it to a thumb drive or something like that, some way of proving to that person that you have to talk to at the VA or wherever you have to talk to to prove that you are who you are and you've achieved what you've achieved. Even as I retired from the State Department having to prove uh, to the Office of Personal Management how I achieved my pay raises over 21 years in the State Department, you know, and I actually went to some e-files I had and shared copies of, of SF50s. Uh, I don't know that I was that vigilant in saving paperwork in the army. When I was getting out, I, I was approaching the eight-year mark and thought, if I'm going to do one more reenlistment, I might as just well go the full twenty. And I had I had a couple of um, officers when I worked in the S three Ops section tell me that I should look at a federal job. You know, mm-hmm. good to have the army, the military background, but now go find a, a good federal job. Uh, you know, move off in a professional in a professional uh, field. I didn't realize what they were saying at the time. Of course, I ended up on the path going into the State Department for 21 years. To, To have the ability to look at what's out there and what's available, I would like to think that the opportunities to get rapid information through the internet, through websites, through podcasts, through blogs, whatever, empowers service members to take more opportunities than maybe we would have had as I was getting out in 1996. We had lists of phones. you know, I could go to the uh, transition center and get handouts of paper, you know, walking around with a piece of paper like it was it was that bad. walk around with like a folder filled with pieces of paper like, oh, this is maybe where I'm gonna go get a job. And I'm also a huge proponent of any kind of networking. Someone has done it before and if you could find that someone, They might be able to show you a better, more efficient way of getting into a position, getting uh, accepted to succeeding with a job interview. Um, It's not just, you know, if you're looking for a federal job, it's really not just efficient to go to USA uh, jobs and start clicking around. You've got to know a little bit how to get through the system to find the job that you want filtering out like, mm, I don't necessarily want to work in Washington DC. Right. I'd much rather work, you know, for Department of Agriculture in Nebraska or, or or whatever it is.
0: Yeah. Geographic location is absolutely important. Yeah. But you touched but, on that too with the virtual about just the ease of internet and having the world at your fingertips, uh, really a click of a button. Uh, but I, I, I think that one thing that really hasn't changed too much, even from your time as you talked about Paul letting you know about You know, seeing this career opportunity. And I think now fast forward to today, it it really, we talk about network. Now we're just calling it or calling it network, calling it learning how to put yourself out there to give your elevator pitch, talk about yourself for 30 seconds. It's more, it's less about the team that you had in service and more about pitching yourself and what you can offer to an organization or company, but really you know, how Paul helped you is, is still, I think with applies today and just having that veteran looking out, reaching back and, and pulling those other ones forward. So yeah. I really appreciate that.
1: That, that clearly is something that the military does a very good job at building us into a team. Yes. And realizing at some point you're going to come off of that team. Uh, right. You've done 25 to 35 years and you've retired. You're not going to be on the team the next day. and um an Army roommate of mine at the time who stayed in a few more years after I did. He once to made the comment to me that it seemed like I walked out of the Army. whereas we had another friend who literally ran out of the army, uh, really didn't go do any kind of transitioning meetings, you know, didn't take any of the self-awareness tests. Um, we've not been able to track whatever happened to that friend of ours. Um, you know it, it, do you have the wherewithal? to start looking out for yourself, you know, not, not from being solely independent, but to then be able to promote yourself so that the next employer, the next connection, the next opportunity says, that's the person that we wanna bring into what's gonna be the next team that you're on. Right. Uh, coming out from under that army security blanket, you know, it's, it's not just the poncho liner that's so comfortable. Knowing that you are so well protected being a member of the US military, can be frightening if you think like, am I going to have healthcare with the next employer? Am I going to have, you know, guaranteed vacation days? Somebody made it, one of my buddies on Facebook made a comment about flying flying space A. You know, I I never took that opportunity, but, you know, will the next opportunity have as much member benefits, fringe benefits, um, or will they be even greater? So yeah, it, it really boils down to, can you as the individual look out for yourself and then properly package to get yourself on the next team. Uh, unless you're gonna, unless you're gonna yeah, win absolutely. the lottery, you know, and go live on some tropical island fingers
0: crossed. Drinking yeah. my ties
1: yeah. all day.
0: <laughs> well, that's a, I mean really appreciate your your thoughts, insight on that because I I think it, it really goes back to looking out for one another and into your friend that ran out of the army, I think there's still veterans out there who don't identify as a veteran. They sort of moved on. They cut the ties, but I think it's from those who continue to fight and those who fought before us, the generations before us, for a better transition to really take care of our veterans and and the and their families uh, is really made so many waves in the positive changes that we're seeing now. So, really thankful for all those who came before us to really. Raise their voices and say, you know, we're not doing enough. So, like looking at those incentives that we did have in service, uh, they just keep getting better. I mean, we we talk about even the educational benefits now. Um, you talked about your your airborne pay and them convincing you to go airborne just in offering just over $100 a hundred dollars a month. And I'm like, is that what your life's worth? You know, you're jumping out of an airplane, but gravity will work no matter what. You're gonna go down. But I just Think about the, awesome. the bonuses, <laughs> right? That you get now. Like you hear about soldiers now and they and service members when they're re-enlisting, then the amazing their bonus now. But I really appreciate your advice, but I really want to take the time because I've been waiting all day for this one, especially to talk about what you're, Can you're doing. Can I
1: You you just you, yes. you briefly touched on it and I I I really should give it credit. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: as mentioned before, I dropped out of school at University of Nebraska. Uh, I'm still a tremendously big Huskers fan, but uh, I knew, and I, I wish I would have gotten on it sooner, that I need to have a college degree at some point in my life. And nice. thankfully, the Education Center on Fort Bragg had a great relationship with what was then, I think, called uh, the University of the State of New York. It's it's since changed its name to now Excelsior College. So with my credits from the University of Nebraska, plus given credit for going to things like BNOC. Uh, the the intermediate, if I don't think it's called that anymore, the the intermediate NCO school that would have allowed me to pin on E seven had I stayed long enough. To other experiences and other college courses, I got eventually. Long story short, leads to me getting a Bachelor of, of Science from Excelsior College, and That's
0: crazy. It, it is
1: a an accredited four year school. Um, and through LinkedIn, I'm, I'm now seeing more and more uh, senior leaders, senior enlisted leaders who are also alumni. And I'm, it, it, it's enough of a, of, a, of a degree that allows me to the open the door to go getting a position as a federal agent. Diplomatic security, much like many other governmental uh, hiring agencies, don't really care what your degree is in. You just need to have a four-year degree under your belt to be able to show them. So um, as proof of that, you know, a guy who has kind of an extension, on, nowadays it would be an online degree, but one of my best friends at the time when we were both junior agents, he had a doctorate in strategic studies, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm like, wow, like that dude's a doctorate. And I'm a guy with a diploma from Excelsior, yet we're by the state department's uh, eyes, we're, we're the same type of employee, no difference. So the importance of, of having that ability whether it's to the University of Maryland or any of the online courses now find the time it's almost like investing in yourself Absolutely. yeah there's always going to be a chance to go to happy hour. there's always going to be a chance to go play golf on you know Saturday morning there's always going to be a chance to do that but please consider spending an hour or two every couple of nights take an online course you can probably go straight to the tests and probably pass with flying colors.
0: Be an active get yourself, learner.
1: Get yourself be a degree.
0: Be a continued, yeah, the continuous active learner. I, and I think that, especially with the military, the way it is now, we're not, you talked about your operational tempo at early on, early in your Army career, where you were going on deployment, you're coming back, and then you're right out the door again within the same 12 months. Uh, And I I just think the stress of importance on higher education now, or even getting certifications is something that where I can, I've seen a shift even in my time in service uh, towards that. And, and you absolutely hit the nail on the head when you said invest in yourself, because it's one of those things that nobody can take away from you, your education and that opportunity to continue growing and, and gaining that knowledge. So. That's, that's absolutely great. Great advice there. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. I, I really want to get, uh, to what you're doing now. You're the director of law enforcement at the Human Trafficking Institute, which I, you know, it's more of a passion project for mine in, in combating human trafficking. So I really wanted to hear about what you're, you're doing now, what your role entails and, and tell us a little bit more about the Human Trafficking Institute.
1: Sure. So let me give you a quick uh, backup. When I went to Korea in 2008, mm-hmm. um, I was a DS special agent assigned to the consular section who issues passports and visas. Not really directly assigned to the security and safety programs associated with the embassy, like a, like a traditional max security agent position in our embassies. But one focused on combating fraud, whether passport fraud or visa fraud. So in the three years that I was there, I eventually got more and more connections to American federal investigators, customs enforcement, immigration, and my own uh, agency, asking questions about people who were getting visas to travel to the United States. Hey, these people are committing crimes when they come to the United States. Open the door a little further and realized we were talking mostly about prostitution. And by the fluke of doing auto sort on an Excel chart one time, I realized, wow, of all these people that we think are connected to uh, illicit visa applications, you know, hundreds of people, there were five IP addresses. I'm not an analyst, I I didn't go into military intelligence, so I don't think I'm that smart, but by hitting auto sort and realizing, whoa, the same IP addresses keep repeating. I got a chance to talk to my good friend and colleague from the uh, Korean national police uh, and said, hey, do these numbers, you know, mean anything to you. And he kind of jokingly said, John, do you think I memorize IP addresses? I'm like, no, no, no. But you know, can you write these down and see if they mean anything? And he called me back 35 minutes later, John, these are tied to an organized crime investigation. This is the link that we've been looking for. So Korean organized crime was was taking people in into coercive situations. Forcing them into prostitution, other forms of labor trafficking, and then at some point having some of them come to the United States. Had no idea what, what where that would lead me professionally. Came back to the United States, got assigned to a headquarters office uh, within DS headquarters in Washington, specialized investigations, part of which was human trafficking. And another tremendous influence in my life, Andrew Parker was our branch chief at the time. And I don't know if anybody told Andrew, if he just decided like, Hey, we're going to start doing more and more of these anti-trafficking efforts, both with specialized cases, but also to connect to the state department, our own department and the FBI uh, department of Homeland security department of labor department of justice Mm -hmm. to better improve the federal effort fighting human trafficking. And I ended up going to some, what I would now describe as bureaucratic meetings, but I met some very key influential members of well below like secretary, well below director, senior management level. These are the worker bees inside the beltway. And we were all fighting anti-trafficking, anti-human trafficking efforts. But we got more and more connected to each other and realized if my tiny agency had the best information on visa fraud, we could give it to Department of Justice or the FBI to better their efforts. Right. So from 2011 to the time I retired in 2020, it was all about making connections and better improving the federal effort to combat trafficking. My counterpart over at the FBI was a guy named Dave Rogers. I remember going to Dave Rogers' retirement party and then kind of followed him because by now I kind of consider myself doing more and more anti-trafficking work. And I watched as Dave went to one anti-trafficking nonprofit, I think based in... Tennessee, maybe, and he was with them for a short time before he came back to this brand new nonprofit in Northern Virginia. And I watched over the course of, I think about two years, Dave worked from within the Human Trafficking Institute, and their model was to take the task force concept and apply it as best they could in all other places. And Dave's organization was looking at international uh, deployment of that idea. And so they first started in Belize. And yeah. it was early in 2020, Dave called me and said, hey, would you consider coming to work at the Institute? And I thought, you know what? I'm getting close to eligibility. I, I can retire. And I can't think of a more better place to work. The founders of the Institute, uh, Victor Boutros and John yes. Cotton yeah. were both Department of Justice anti-trafficking prosecutors in their headquarters office. And so these are people that, we, that I would see at meetings or events around Washington, D.C., I was never fortunate to see them in the courtroom on their cases. But John and Victor formed the Institute, and it was easy for them to bring in colleagues and friends and work on the effort that we're now still working on and we're growing. The Institute now does work in Belize. We also do work in Uganda. Um, Again, trying to foster collaborative task force modeled work involving investigators prosecutors and social service providers those who will help a victim of human trafficking as soon as a victim has been removed extracted from the situation or their their uh, their harsh conditions inside a trafficking scheme
0: and you all come out with a a report annually do you not
1: we do and and this is another interesting uh, component, they're actually working on it right now, the staff, uh, the in-house staff who works on a report. It's it's effectively looking at what the U.S. federal government has done in anti-trafficking efforts over the past year. So, HTI is getting ready to release the 2021 report, probably going to be released sometime June or July, um, and it analyzes programmatically, not case by case, but how well the U.S. government is doing in prosecuting human trafficking cases. And um, in our system, federal, state and local judiciaries, we're not reliant upon the federal government to do all anti-trafficking prosecutions. So in in other countries, they would say like, man, America, your numbers are very low, but then you realize some trafficking cases also take place at the state level. A recent case that was just uh, uh, shown in a DOJ press release Three labor traffickers in the southern part of the state of Georgia are going away to prison for their involvement in the scheme involving farm laborers, I think kind of from south-central to eastern Georgia. You know, and these are mostly migrant workers, okay, maybe some of them may have been in the country legally, but many others came in legally via visa or other methods to then be exploited doing farm work. So, you know, the, the produce that ends up on your dinner table that ends up on my dinner table or that we see at a restaurant, it's got to come from somewhere. And if if that labor is exploited, we'd very much like the American government to, um, to find ways to stop that from happening. Investigate, find the evidence, identify the victims, get them into safety, and then go after the traffickers through prosecution. And I think
0: that's even... That's especially valid with the supply chain that we talk about, you know, veteran voices part of the supply chain now family. But when we talk about supply chain really taking a look and, and holding those, those people accountable, those places that there may be labor trafficking involved. And you want to make sure that well, the products that we're getting from those places isn't as a result of, of slave labor. That's mm-hmm. what that human trafficking is, right? Modern day slavery. Yeah.
1: It's, and it's, it's hard it's hard to do, you know, as, as consumers, I'm wearing a, a white cotton t-shirt. This shirt's probably mostly cotton too. I, I don't know where the cotton was picked. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it picked by coerced labor in Bangladesh? Was it, you know, uh, was it farmed on some farm in Central Asia using exploited labor? I don't know. The coffee I drank this morning.
0: Yes. Who, who picked absolutely. the beans and,
1: and, and were they paid a fair wage? I I don't know. You can go to some websites, you can even get apps on your phone that kind of grades. And every once in a while you'll hear of uh usually lawsuits involving uh producers. Um, and, and there have been some big monumental cases against some very large conglomerates who have have found exploitation within their supply chain. Um, I, I think, for the most part, a corporate uh, the global corporate structure wants to do the right thing, <clears throat> but many times it is it is about turning a profit. Um, now, what so. would
0: you um, for for those folks who want to learn more about human trafficking? I, I think you you've done a, a great job of not throwing out a bunch of numbers, and I think just you and I being in this space know that the data is really difficult to to go off because. You might know the case that you can count the cases that are prosecuted, but as far as the number of cases and you alluded to like how difficult it is to identify and to track and so to just be very mindful of the numbers that are out there. But if folks want to to learn more about human trafficking and the different types and, and uh, where would you recommend that they go? And then also if they want to get involved, uh, where would you advise them to go?
1: Well, I mean, and not to be overly to dramatic about it. But, volunteer. You know, go go to Google, type in human trafficking, and then type in the name of your town. Maybe not city, type in the name of your town. Chances mm-hmm. are what's going to come up is a news story, probably with a connection to prostitution. So is that a legitimate person who wants, who chooses to be in sex work? And we're not talking children, but you know, is an adult sex worker who Identifies themselves as a sex worker. I don't know. Is it like I, I saw a news uh, clip yesterday of a of a sting operation? You know, they were trying to ensnare in purchasers of commercial sex. You know, it's legal in a few places, but it's not legal everywhere. To find labor trafficking, um, there are a number of websites and um, any number of places to look. The Department of Labor has uh, a website where you can go and, and type in things like your zip code. Or if you've made a recent purchase on something, find out if that came for potentially uh, exploited labor.
0: That's a great tool. Absolutely, yeah.
1: As far as trying to uh, volunteer, it, it sometimes can be a very challenging environment to volunteer. You really, I don't know that you could just show up at a shelter. Let's say for um, you know women uh, who have been involved with. Uh, who had been victimized by commercial sex, you're probably not going to be ushered in the front door and immediately put to work. Um, But there are a number of places to volunteer places like women's shelters and shelters for any kind of victim are always in need of financial support. Um, The pandemic was exceedingly difficult for social service providers. Um, And it was, it was a also very dangerous time for for victims and survivors of of crime because they did not feel protected. Things were locked down, things were shut down. Um, Shelters were not open. Social service offices were not open. Those workers were were at home, potentially teleworking or just not working. So um, just like, you know, if you wanted to find a news article, you could also type in volunteering in Google and probably find some really good opportunities to volunteer in your neighborhood. That Some are faith-based, some are more civic-based. Um, to get operationally into human trafficking, um, I sometimes joke with Victor, my boss, who is an attorney, that it's easier for a, a junior attorney to get more involved into doing anti-trafficking judicial work than it is for, let's say, an investigator. Uh, most police departments, most uh, investigative agencies, require you to go off and kind of cut your teeth and build your skills and other methods, and then after years, you might get transferred into an anti-trafficking unit. It's,
0: it's really hard.
1: It's really hard to get as a rookie investigator onto an anti-trafficking team at any level within any jurisdiction. I would say pretty much anywhere in the world. Social service work—you know—the the core effort of certified very well educated in um, successful social workers that's also a long path of education and incremental experience so you know you're not just going to walk off the street you know straight out of let's say your high school or your college graduation ceremony go straight into social service work but there are building blocks to it so so volunteering might be the way and in some cases we were hti we were connected to i think a couple fraternities at the university in texas who wanted to stage just a one day event all proceeds of that event going to anti trafficking efforts some of it came to hti and, and some of it went to uh texas based organizations so
0: i'm glad that you brought that up yeah to cuz it, it shows that wherever that anybody can really get involved like you don't there's no you don't have to have a, a major degree background um that you can really just volunteer your time well, to organize an event right that
1: you're yeah. also a great example um <laughs> you're also doing you know efforts for for the tremendous need in guam but my and guess you can is talk you,
0: about yeah
1: you probably haven't been to guam in recent days but yet you're still right. contributing you know by both by effort and maybe maybe you send a couple of dollars every once in a while too
0: and uh, even even your representatives like i spoke to a congressional representative Uh, congressional office recently and just getting an opportunity to speak to like you mentioned the town. So even speaking to your local city council or it just do you have a human trafficking task force in your community? If you don't have one, is there a way that you could get one? Is there a need to have one? Um, And really just even in the next town over from where I live, they established a human trafficking task force. It was a group of women that came together and they saw that there was a need and they, they pitched it in front of the city council and it got approved. And this was back in 2016 and they're still going strong now. So it was just, uh, something of just getting together and, and being able to see where you can offer and lend your support, uh, through the skills that you have and the connections that you have. And, and that's where I'm, I'm doing now with my research now in my doctoral program and i'm really glad that you brought up school because even if you take a break from school you drop out of school there's always there's always an opportunity to continue learning and to go back and numerous resources now available especially to the veterans out there to be able to go back and and earn a certification or or training so there's there's a lot of opportunities to go after and do the things that you love to do like john and i are both in you know we're both in the counter-human trafficking space So I I really want to, if listeners, there's so many nuggets of wisdom that you dropped today, John, but if our listeners today want to be able to get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to reach and perhaps keep the conversation going with you?
1: Fastest is probably through LinkedIn. And I think we're going to put my connection up on the website, right?
0: We can absolutely share your LinkedIn information. And then out on LinkedIn, we'll also, on Veteran Voices, Supply Chain Now will definitely tag you and also Human Trafficking Institute. So you can learn more about uh, John. I like to say those virtual cups of coffee are really helpful. I remember the first time I spoke to John, I was actually on on staff duty. So <laughs> still on active duty army. And I wanted to reach out for that uh, virtual cup of coffee with you, John. And I'm so glad that you did because you've been so helpful and instrumental during my transition from active duty. And uh, just really grateful for your time today and in sharing about your story. Appreciate so, it. So yeah, thank you so much. Uh, was there any any last minute uh things that you have before we close yeah, just, out? I
1: mean, just to to kind of keep all bases covered, if anybody thinks they have an indication of human trafficking or they've they've seen something that seems a little uh unusual, my advice is always. Don't put yourself or those people in any potential harm. If it's a real human trafficking situation, by you confronting it, you may actually put the, the victim at further harm. So please let somebody know uh, if, it's, if it's an emergency, call 911. If someone is facing harm, call 911. Um, if you'd like to, you can also call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Their number is one 373 seven eight 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 uh easily found online too but let somebody know we would much rather you err on the side of caution and realize oh it's just you know some some unusual uh work arrangement but chances are the if you see something and say something we might get a, a jump on the chance to to stop something much more sooner than just chalking it up yes. to uh that's that's something weird i don't want to get involved i don't want to don't want to get in anybody's business. Um, Absolutely. So, if, if if you do see something, that's the best uh, track forward.
0: Thank you so much, John. Absolutely, I'm really glad that you shared the the hotline number and again with 911. Just these resources that are available 24 uh, seven, contact and uh, see something, say something. So, thank you so much, John. Again, and for you know sharing a bit more about the Human Trafficking Institute and your transition from the military. On behalf of the entire team here at Veteran Voices, thank you so much. And thank you to all our listeners today. We invite you to find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. A big thank you to our partners at Vets to Industry. This is Mary-Kate Saliva wishing all of our listeners nothing but the best. Stay motivated, do good, get forward, and be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time here on Veteran Voices. Thanks, everybody.